I think from what I've read about brewing in the Church of England, is more to do with, okay, the church needs a new stained glass window, so the church wardens put on a brew, raise some money, keep the villagers happy, and then everyone was happy. It, it just helps with the social links. And I think that what, what we saw later was there'd always, whenever there was a church, there was a pub. So the link might have been broken by the brewing, it may not have been done by the church, but there was always like, a pub nearby. Hi, I'm Rain Weigel. And I'm Jacob Kohler. And we're outside, inside out. Welcome to the final episode of our look into the relationship between alcohol and the church and how it's so much more integrated and ingrained and rooted in all those words uh, than we ever thought before. We could just get the thesaurus out while you're there and have a go at all the other words. <laughs> at the top of the episode, you heard a clip from Steve, uh, who's one of the elders, guardians uh, wardens. of the church. And wardens, that's right. We really do need that thesaurus. <laughs> I feel like the churches in general have like overused the thesaurus for everything. Everybody has the same job, so they just come up with different names for them. <laughs> so you heard from Steve, who's one of the wardens at Primrose Hill. And he was looking historically at what the church has done. We've we've looked at the beginnings of the the church and how wine and even beers have been integrated uh, throughout it. If you read the Bible, it's always there, especially wine. We've talked about how important communion was and even possibly this idea of a, a Trinitarian look at grapes itself and how wine is a culmination of that. Um, we've seen how the church has diverged uh, from this in a, in a reaction to the industrialization of alcohol and just the plague of alcoholism. Uh, as cheap alcohol and plentiful, uh, high toxic alcohol uh, w was made for the masses. But today we wanted to discuss kind of this ant. We wanted to discuss how we're seeing people of faith kind of re-embracing this, maybe taking a step back from some reactionary ideas on alcohol and, and looking at it in a more holistic and, and possibly balanced way. Uh, so that's what we're hoping... To, to do today we're, we're going to go full circle to use the cliche i believe hopefully <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna end where we started is, is that what a good podcast does end where we started yeah i, I listened yeah. to that that's that's what we intend to do with outside inside out we're trying to go full circle in a way and bring the the questions to completion I really needed yeah. thesaurus today. <laughs> uh, I, that's what Apple needs to come up with. It's just is as you speak, it just comes up with alternative words on the side that you can use um, instead of the definition. Use. Yeah, that's more helpful. Yeah, I don't need definition. I, I, just, I just need other words. Right. Um, yeah. So as we alluded to in the first part of all this, uh, Steve and Roddy were the initiators of the, the brewery inside mm -hmm. that 
the Crypt Church, and they'd both been wardens for a period of time, and wardens is described aptly by Rain earlier using all those um, different other words. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they your church probably has one, maybe not with that name. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you you guys all have one if you go to church. Someone with keys, essentially. Their job, amongst other things, was making sure all the bills were paid. Yep. And something that was unique about St. Mary's was that they were hosting a local youth worker in their building. It's not necessarily unique, but that was something that they specifically invested yeah. in there. Um, and those that youth worker spent a lot of time trying to help the kids that were living in the local council estates, which we sort of covered in the first episode, but that's just low-income housing in the UK. That's what they call it. Yep. In those council estates, you've got a lot of, I won't say poverty, but close to poverty, and a lot of drug and crime issues, sort of, which go along with low income often, and, and that little bit of destitution that goes along with that. In Primrose Hill, the actual biggest issue was the knife crime, we learned, and it's pretty much UK knife crime central. Yeah. So that's sort of what they were working on. That's That was their goal to, well, that's the goal of the youth worker, is to invest in trying to come up to solutions against the knife crime problem that that's there in that area. And that's so they, they really felt like they needed to find new ways, interesting ways to invest and help that problem. Um, and that's the heart of the brewery, believe it or not, is to support the youth worker. And, and that's, that's what we learned straight away when we got there. I have a funny anecdote about the knife crime. When I lived in London, they, they had a huge um, problem with knife crimes and they, and the, the, police and everybody was doing all, all they could in fact we were we noticed the bishop there he had like a cross made out of reclaimed knives from this kind of knife yeah that's right uh, crime thing uh and the bbc had this this picture of the police had confiscated this knife and they were talking they were like they couldn't believe how ridiculous it was it was like this this like two-headed sword thing and it was basically you hold the handle in the middle and then on the both ends are like these two elongated um, swords. And they're talking about like this, look at this awful thing we found. How does anybody need anything like this? And I remember looking at it thinking, that's that's a prop. That's a Klingon thing. That's that's the Klingon like sword from Star Trek. Oh, really? <laughs> and, and it was, it was, they, they confiscated some poor guy's uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> collection from, from from his star trek thing and they had to like retract it they, and uh it was early days of social media and everything so you could see the comments were like uh that's a <laughs> that's from star trek that's it might actually be a real blade the guy might have sharpened it but but it was this this idea like it, it was like it made like the front page news because like this is we're, we're just trying to get small knives, but look what we found. Look at the damage you could cause with this. No one needs a knife like this. <laughs> like, well, Klingons apparently do. <laughs> so. Back to the beer. Yeah. So Steve and Roddy were looking for ways to find to fund their community need there. And uh, so they decided it was a bit of an outside shot, their story goes, uh, that they yep. both sort of tried brewing in the past Roddy, in particular, had been a little bit more enthusiastic about it. He just thought he'd throw the idea out there 
And uh, yeah, the, the vicar at the place, we heard right back in the first episode of this series. And we heard a little bit from the bishop last time in the context of telling us all about the the saints. Um, I was recording a few. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, they were really enthusiastic about the idea because they understood the history of the church. And they were keen to bring a little bit of that back. And what they experienced was more than just a, a fundraising, which I think the fundraising isn't even the main thing that they discovered. And it probably isn't really... No. Wasn't really the, the main win that they had there. But they began to find enthusiastic support and they began to raise an awareness that they just weren't expecting to get. And that is key to what we've discovered as we've looked out beyond this little episode because we've discovered it yeah. across a number of different places since that time and even going into that little interview that we did there. It's it's fascinating. It, it was kind of baked into Stephen Rodney uh, how the church and the pub and just kind of that community was there. And, and if you've ever lived in a big city, the community is hard to find. And it was it was kind of special when we were there to see like the the open air market and how they were selling beer there and, and people in the community were loved it. They loved the beer. They loved that the church was doing it. Um, they loved what it was what it was all about. And, you know, and, and having that that moment to kind of hang out and, and have a have a beer is was 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 integral and special because you're you're in community while you're doing that. You're 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 conversing. You're you're sharing life together. And then what they were discovering was local businesses became interested. Local businesses were learning about the problem in a new way and it raised awareness mm-hmm. amongst the community. So they stopped by and buy a beer at the market and then they found out, oh well I didn't really know about this terrible knife crime thing and and so it just was unusually effective in not a way that they were really expecting and not a way that I would have yeah. expected. Um, just making a bit of cash would have been okay. But yeah, they really have this unusual role now to be the ambassadors in what is mostly a really rich area of London, apart from the few council sites that are still there. But it was... Yeah. When we were doing our film and taking videos, it was kind of amazing to see a, a Maserati or a Ferrari and ride across the road from <laughs> a two-bedroom council flat. Yeah, Primrose Hill, uh, St. Mary's Primrose Hill really does hold the two very well, I, th- I thought, where there's... It's in one of the... the most desirable spots of London. And as people may, may or not know in London in particular, uh, these council flats or the, these low income housing is interdispersed throughout the whole city. And uh, famously it was wherever a, a bomb from the blitz was dropped and destroyed a house. They, they built council flats there. So there are quite a few around that area and, and how that church kind of melds the community in with um people from the council states and, you know, and, and providing an outlet for, for both and providing a place where they wouldn't necessarily gather or intermix or, or you know, have community that the, the, that church is providing that. So I think before we completely go into some of the more things we've noticed in the future, I think it's important to yeah. just drop back into the past a little bit more. Um, and talk a little bit mm-hmm. about why this is a surprise. You know, we kind of touched on it in some of the other conversations we had, 
But why would would it be a surprise uh, for so many of the community to find the, the church brewing again and find that this unusual community that has sort of sprung up around a brewing thing? And uh, yeah, so probably time for a commercial, but Rain still needs to record a few more. Are you like me and so many other people? You love the genre that is murder shows. Oh, you could be binging my Netflix or listening to podcasts on them. You just love it. I love it. Oh, I can't get enough of those murder shows. I just want to eat them up. Yum, 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 yum. But then do you find yourself emotionally invested in these characters only to find out later that they voted differently from you or they had an offensive tweet, possibly maybe, or worse of all, they're a Calvinist? Well, what if I told you there's a new podcast out there that is all the dark, compelling entertainment you've come to expect from the murder podcasts, but without the inevitable social conundrum that human beings bring in their messiness? We invite you to listen to Paw Patrol Murder Alley, where it's a murder podcast, but instead of humans, it's dogs and some cats and a chinchilla in one episode. It's amazing. It's terrifying, heartwarming. It's dog eat dog. It's awful neighbor eats dog. It's everything you want. It's incredible. Listen to it now, wherever you listen to podcasts. The main point that we need to cover is just, you know, where the parties began to separate, where community and the church and the and brewing and, and all that really began to spread out and we we spoke about the industrial revolution as sort of the source of a lot of alcoholism a lot of alcohol related problems but the place where these great uh the chasm how about that for a a source word the place where the chasm sort of began is really more with the reformation era and and that time and that's where alcohol production became secularized so yeah we got industrialization going on not long after that but the steps of taking church and alcohol and breaking the the gap there and maybe let's say taking the pub away from the church that was nearby making that gap yeah whatever i've said it enough that's where we began to see the move away well there wasn't just one reason i think when we look at this we we can certainly blame industrial revolution and, and and what came of that um but with the Reformation area before that, it's there wasn't one reason why alcohol production started becoming more secularized. Um, some of it had to do with uh, the abbeys and um, the monks just kind of being dispersed and and then people wanting beer, that, but the monks aren't there anymore uh, if they're now living in a more Protestant area or, or the monks kind of changing how they, they, they did the work. Uh, in the UK, um, you had Henry VIII disbanding the monasteries, and um, and so that left a void and a gap uh, that was kind of replaced by the local pub or um, wives started having to to make lager as as part of their 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 daily chore. Um, but there's so many different reasons, and we we know the French Revolution uh, had huge consequences and and went so far as to uh, turn uh, the Cathedral of Notre Dame into uh, the Cathedral of, of secular uh, human reason. Yeah, what and, was, yeah. Yeah, human reason. Yeah. That's right. 
Yeah. And they had that, that, that the whole first French Revolution was uh, they killed a lot of monks had all these, and, and so forth. <laughs> they killed a lot of monks, they killed a lot of people. It really was um yeah, it it was a, a, a genocide if if we're completely honest. Um and so but with that came a you know loss of a lot of learning, a lot of production, a lot of things. Um so now the where probably before that would you say it was you got most of your liquor, uh, whether wine or spirits or, or beer, was from the monks. Um, and then after the Reformation, you started getting that from you know, more fragmented places. So, Well, there was a um, strong way of doing things, and the, and the monks and the monasteries were at the center of it all, and that, that just suddenly got broken down. I think going back to... Sorry, going up and across a little bit to Germany, you see a lot of this state breweries uh, having to be formed with the Protestant Revolution a little bit earlier and and some of those yeah. still exist today but you know a lot of monasteries that were doing that job got shut down um, they started state things instead something that I always think it's slightly related is the iconoclasm within the Protestant churches where they ripped up a lot of the stuff a little beautiful art they just tore it off the wall mostly as a, a bit of a, a grab you know like oh we we want to get rid of Catholicism oh great there's gold in the church let's quote unquote get rid of that and oh wow we don't know what to do with that I'm going to just stuff it in my pocket so there was a lot of that going on yeah but you lost a lot of let's say richness in that period, unfortunately. Yeah, and did. now if you go around to Protestant Holland, where I live or uh, Protestant Germany, you, you have some pretty um, drab big churches and cathedrals now because they destroyed a lot of the beauty that was within it. And I'm, I know that affected things like brewing. I know it affected a lot of other arts from that time period or well, became a bit too serious. Yeah, I think good. you actually had an interesting thing um, I just thought might be interesting to bring up. You mentioned King Henry got rid of monasteries and you were recently in Scotland yeah. and I know that the production of yeah. whiskey is what we often tie to Scotland and I do know from my excellent research into the topic <laughs> that whiskey was highly affected at this period. The production of whiskey should say scotch had started with the same way as most things started yeah. in that time through abbeys and monasteries and such. And then it was banned. Yep. Monasteries are closed down at that time. And then that was another place where you had to move on. And you, you sort of found a little bit more about that. Yeah. And it, again, it's a, this idea where the monks um, started something and tweaked it and played with it and, and changed it. And then also, um, people learned how to do it from the monks. And so, like you said, Scotch whiskey um, is, you know, you know, in order to be a whiskey from Scotland or be called Scotch whiskey, it has to be um, brewed in Scotland and stored on Scottish soil for three years and one day. And, um, and then of course you don't want to touch it for another, you know, 10 years at least after that. So um Lindor's Abbey is about an hour north of Edinburgh, and it's one of the oldest abbeys in Scotland. I believe it was Thomas Beckett, uh, the, as, as the legend goes, had um, a group of, of monks uh, were caught in a storm. They were coming over, I, th I think, from Belgium, and they harbored in this, this uh, you know, the harbor of, of, of Edinburgh, and 
they 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 created this monastery and for them they they brewed um it was called aquavita which is a medicine um and the king of england records of them demanding so many barrels of it and and they really honed and and tweaked and played with it and but they were a huge factor in all of scotland not only did they they bring whiskey they housed everybody you know william wallace and other um great great scottish men who were you know fighting england or fighting for freedom they they were part of that also with with the whole you know catholic uh protestant with the catholic um queens from scotland versus the the, the protestant in, in in england scotland maintained a bit more uh, cohesiveness there hmm. um but it, it was fascinating to see how that all started and then how how it, it moved on basically we have whiskey today the way we have it because uh, it was like you said it was illegal or it was highly taxed and so people were just illegally brewing it and one of the things they did is after they brewed it they they hid it in barrels and when mm-hmm. they came back to that barrel a couple of years later like oh hey this is this is a different color it used to just be clear mm. and oh it tastes better than it did before <laughs> and and that's i love how it's like a meld between you know the monks started it and then just people you know working and playing in a difficult society in a difficult times mm. found this by chance found this other thing that we now all absolutely love and spend stupid amount of money on yeah that's interesting like um again like how difficulty and challenges produces something that it's actually kind of good but that's another podcast and another discussion and something that you should definitely discuss while you're sitting with your friends drinking whiskey something that we didn't really discuss though is that thing of distilled spirits distilled spirits are like the evil of all evils when it comes to church people and and he's talking about um the movement away from alcohol you know we've talked about the cheap distilleries as a result of industrialization but uh actually in some parts of the world you can really see the link a lot clearer and if you're in particularly in germany and austria if you're going through the supermarket at the checkout you'll see all these bitters and liqueurs they have in little bottles they want you to pick up instead of chewing gum and a lot of them will have again like saint something or a cross or whatever because uh, that's where they came from and, and they were all similar to whiskey they were this background story there they were trying to find a medicinal product and so if you have a stomach ache even my yep. grandmothers would have said something like this go take a bottle of of this bitter because it has such and such in it um, poisonous herb of some kind <laughs> but it probably helps you with your stomach but that's what Jägermeister was and you can see on Jägermeister the, the picture of the cross if you go through Europe today, you'll see many monasteries still making their schnapps and making their little tonics. Of course, we also have chartreuse, the the color, which is named after the classic a liqueur in the monastery. So, you know, that one still goes on. That's still a secret what they throw in that one. I'm sure that uh, still by the there's a whole lot of other ones I can't think of right now. When we first started looking into this, I... I saw the direct tie between beer and, and wine with the church. And I was, I was a little surprised with um, spirits. And I think if anybody goes to a liquor store and you look at it, there's so much Christian iconography on a lot of the spirits we have. And it's, it's fascinating to, to see how the church was, was so involved in even, even that side of it. Yeah. 
what we discovered as well, and I think this is where we're getting to in this point, Chartreuse is, is an example. We had a shutdown of many of the monasteries. We had secularization in that time and a move away from the church being a center of societies of learning and all that. We had industrialization and the cheaper, easier way of making all this stuff, but we didn't really have a complete separation at any point. And that's what we found sort of interesting because getting plonked into the, the timeline as we are now, we just assume a, a complete separation. Yeah. But we also at this time meeting with Stephen Roddy, meeting with other people, uh, there wasn't. Uh, there's always been something going on. Steve mentioned something that I wasn't really aware of. Is It's called a parish ale. Um, and it's a long tradition in the UK where the parish has a beer or um, is a part of a, of a local distillery or beer or brewery. And this ale is used as a fundraiser for either helping the church, you know, put on a new roof or whatever their community outreach was. And, and that was their inspiration. Um, and we looked into that, didn't we? There was um, uh, Fuller's, which is the biggest um, brewery in, in London. Uh, they have the bishop, comes and blesses it every year and they they for the longest time gave a portion of it to the church of england to use for um fundraising i i had a friend in seattle who's was a pastor of a presbyterian church and because of the pandemic um he was so closely entwined uh with the community in columbia city seattle just cute little you know area of boutique shops and restaurants and everybody was suffering because of the um the pandemic and lack of business. And so he worked with a, uh, the small local brewery and they created a couple beers to sell and use as a fundraiser to help these local restaurants, uh, you know, kind of bridge the gap. My own family, my wife's family is Watney's red barrel ale. There was a complicated history there of, of um, the son uh, not wanting to be a part of, of the production of alcohol and, um, was like back in shamed the, of the family's back money. in the industrial times. Yeah, it was po- yeah, just post-industrial kind of Victorian times. Um, the it would have been my wife's great great grandfather was not wanting to kind of be a part of that. Was part of the conversion of of kind of Methodism and you know really strong ideas about alcohol and just seeing that that collapse. Um, but in the end, you know, coming back around to to the family business and kind of flipping that money into building community and building churches uh, around the world. And um, we saw even with the Guinness family, how you know, post-generation, some of the Guinness families started doing the Guinness trusts and other things to kind of flip that money back into specific kind of community building. I live in, in Cornwall, England now, and St. Austell's Brewery is, uh, is the biggest in brewery in, in our area. And it, for years, had a unique situation where because Cornwall had such a strong um, Methodist movement about them, uh, there really wasn't a lot of demand for beer. Methodists in general tended to be teetotals. Wesleyans. They were Wesleyans, which we brought uh, up. Wesleyan, yeah. Yeah. So if you were Wesleyan, you you, you tended not to drink. Um, so there wasn't a, a big demand for it here. So Cornwall didn't have a lot of breweries uh, but St. Austell was, was one that had um, kind of kept going, was small and kind of gained um, a following. But they've 
over time, they've kind of incorporated a lot of pubs. They've bought up a lot of pubs and um, worked with them. And what they were saying is they many of the pubs they've, they have used to actually have a brewery attached to it. And what would happen is when a church was being built, specifically the Church of England, uh, they would come out to build a church. But right before they built the church, they would build a pub and an inn. And, and that would be a place for the workers and the local community to gather. And obviously it was also housing for the workers while they built the, the, the church. And it would take them years to build a church. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but it was fascinating that they, <laughs> the first thing they did was build a pub. Yeah. And then they built the church. <laughs> and the two were intertwined. And it was this, this, this really interesting, you know, fabulous thing. So once, once the workers left, you actually had Both. this community Sat, you had the church there, you had the pub, you know, a couple of doors down, and uh, it was you know, ready, set, ready to go. And I think that's the amazing thing that we've discovered of all the, t the time. This is sort of going to head towards our conclusion of everything we learned. You know, it started off looking for medical advances, you know, started off helping the community in that way with all these stuff they were, they were making. Uh, and like I suggested, it was borderline homeopathic sort of stuff but this is where it, we realized that it, that it we began to see it has always served the community and it brought people together and that's what we highlighted already in great detail about primrose hill and that's what we discovered here in amsterdam uh, there was the brewery that we also visited that was started by a modern sort of monastery movement uh, some another episode we could go into modern monasteries and they, that's what they specifically went out to do, to create a place where people could come together after work. And the, the local government gave them some funding to do that because they realized the importance of that. Yeah. And that's sort of, let's say, part of the, the discovery, part of the summary. It's really important to understand this, this community building aspect that actually fits really well alongside any church building. And something that I think yeah. is really important because... We've sort of rediscovered the lack of community through this COVID thing that we've just gone through, which I hate talking about, but mm. you know, that, that's not that, but that's that highlights yeah. the problem in, in a really new way for most of us. Yeah. It's, it became like a microcosm of things that we've been seeing for generations now, but like for these two years, that lack of community, the lack of, of interaction was so hard. And we've just seen the mental health problems and the concerns and just how amazing community is just for people's you know everyday life. One of the best things I, I did during it was I had some friends. We just did a online poker um, <laughs> and created a little wiki site. And, and it was just this amazing time. Like no matter what, he was all over Zoom, but we at least got together. We all would have a beer you know, over Zoom and chat and make fun of each other and play. Why wasn't I invited? Uh, <laughs> I, feel, I, feel, I feel like there's something now between us that I wasn't expecting to come out of this. You weren't expected to do. These are, these are my high, they're high roller friends. Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> that's the problem, isn't it? <laughs> that was a bit of a problem. Hey everyone. Let's talk about something a little uncomfortable for a second. And that's weight loss. It's hard. It sucks. I'm I'm there with you. I, I hate it. It's not funny for one thing. And for the other thing, it's just a lot of work. And a lot of not eating and most importantly drinking the things that you really want to drink. 
But you know what a generation of internet use and television has taught me? That weight loss is mainly psychosomatic. With that in mind, I want to introduce you to a brand new weight loss program that is, dare I say it, I'm going to say it, it's revolutionary. It is different, better than anything you've ever seen before. It's called St. Patrick's Shamrock Protein Shakes. Oh, choose a subscription of your choice. You can get 7, 14, 21 deliveries a week of hand-picked greens. They're not all greens from the vegetable garden, but they're green. They're going to mix that with their own specially blended proteins and a choice selection of beers. Yeah, you heard me. Beers. All this mixed in together. You can use your own blender. You can buy theirs. I, I bought theirs myself. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Blends everything. Soap smooth. It's like it's like drinking in green silk. That tastes like beer. It's incredible. I keep saying incredible, but it is. The weight just keeps shedding off like water off a duck's back or beer off a duck's back for that matter. It's incredible. I keep saying incredible, but it is. Try it. St. Patrick's Shamrock Protein Shakes for your weight loss. It's psychosomatic. And I, but I think what is fascinating for you and I is, and, and just chatting with people is like, we, we see this situation with uh, the pandemic and that, that fragmentation of society and, and isolation. But when we kind of take a step back, we actually were seeing that throughout the last however, you know, 20, 30 years or more, how we were, we were seeing isolation kind of creeping in quite often, or there was community, but it was really confined, you know, and, and I think that's one of the things with, with the evangelical church in America in particular is, is that it, it tends to ha- do community, um, but it's very kind of specific. It's, it's very a specific kind uh, of community that is kind of alienating in a way. For a lot of people, yeah, it's insular. It's an insular. it's an insular community, and it's not outward focused. And I think through as as we look through this, we saw what's happening in Primrose Hill. We see what's going on in Amsterdam. We see these other churches doing it. We see the history of the church, where it they they were building community, but it was it's all outward focused. They're all looking at expanding that community, bringing in people, and you know just meeting them where they are and <laughs> inviting them for a drink. I mentioned to you ages ago, but went to a brewery in a monastery and there was a woman. This She's the oldest brewmaster nun in the world, maybe even the last. Yeah. Uh, she's been running a monastery brewery for years. Uh, she inherited it from her, what are they called? Uh, I want to say mistress, but that sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah, that's something. Yeah. She inherited it. <laughs> but, you know, this this was probably a big part of the heart of the the documentaries because what happened towards the end of that was that I went through the place we sat down we tried some beer one beer we tried and uh, in that time we got a phone call and a guy came up um, he was coming up because he was he said fed up with his family and um, huh. and she ended up counseling the, the guy for about an hour and we sat there with him and her uh, and drinking a couple more beers that she kept on giving to him and us. We ended up eating some salami that she had been given as a gift uh, and some other things that were the, wow. 
that were there um, from the monastery, some cheeses and bread that they'd been baking. And we had like this whole time set around a counseling session for the guy. And it was really natural. Uh, she as a religious person figure and him as a random person, he talked very freely about his problems and even included yeah. us in the conversation because we found this unusual <laughs> but extremely natural place to meet. And probably for her, it was a normal, that, was, that, that just happens all the time. People people come in and, and share their life. Yeah, I really enjoyed that experience and I'd love to go there again. Uh, maybe for if we ever get the funds that people can contribute towards our documentary. Okay. Yeah, we definitely, need to, we definitely need to interview her. It taught me, you know, in a, in a new way, we just need not be afraid um, of, of this whole thing of drinking together. Sure, there are problems, but this, this guy walked out and he was um, not just happy because he got a couple of free beers. He was happy because he was able to deal with this stress that was on his life. Mm -hmm. And we met him that day, and I'd be happy to meet that guy again. You know, we, we, he had a terrible German-English accent. <laughs> he couldn't say um, the W's and all that kind of stuff. And I, um, so it was hard in some ways to talk. But we yeah. created a unique community that day, and, and that was something that I, yeah, it's a day I'll never forget. I mean, it's, it's, you feel like that, that's a, this, this place where, a space was created and and i think for that that monastery or nunnery or whatever you would call it they've been doing that there for hundreds of years where it's a retreat it's people come to to talk and to decompress and i i love the idea kind of coming from america we have this kind of individualism idea where i'm just going to solve my problem myself i'm going to if i'm a christian i might just me and god on a on a walk and we're going to hash it out and but we're built for community and we're built for places. And it's really fascinating when you find play people and groups that specifically go out to create places that invite community. But th those are moments. Those happen time and again. And how important it is, you know, we can't do this ourselves. Life's hard. Marriage is hard. Family's hard. Uh, let's find these places to recharge and to to share our experience, whether, you know, good or bad. I, I just, I love that, that, that idea. Uh, but I also love the idea that these are happening at these retreat centers and monasteries all the time, but it's happening millions of times at a pub or in someone's backyard, you know, with, with a beer and just a, a, a chat. And I think that's equally as, as, as beautiful in, in a lot of ways. And it highlights the wisdom of Jesus starting the church, you know, launching the church career of these disciples mm -hmm. at the Last Supper when he uh, said, you know, this is take my body and take my blood is given to you. And that's where the church started. And, and for like we highlighted earlier in the show, that's was the height of going to church. Again, the wisdom of Jesus is proved quite wise, quite practical and uh, unusually deeper than we probably could put in our own words. Yeah. And I think there's this idea of, uh, you know, the the three-legged stool of just how, you know, it's our lives, community, and something that's bringing us together to, to share. There's a small little community near where I live. My, my son, my youngest son, was went to the school there for a little bit. And uh, it's called Trelay. It's, it's basically a hamlet of the bigger town of Red Ruth. 
and it was started in 1846 as uh, a tin mine was showing up and they were they they're prospecting a tin mine so when they to get the miners they built some houses they built the church they built a pub and they built a school and those are this is what we need for the tin mine and the tin mine collapsed relatively quickly like within 20 years it collapsed um and it wasn't a viable mine but that three-legged school stool of the school the church and the pub kept that community together for for generations and it was kind of a central part of that community and how all three worked together um and they're all integrated into each other's lives i mean 150 years without really a viable source of income or how any reason for the community to be there you know these three things the church the pub and the school work together to to keep the community tight and um and you know living life together i mean as we finish up I and mean, you and i jacob we are like we said, we're, our tribe is the modern evangelical church and, you know, love or hate it. We, we do both. <laughs> so we understand. And it was, it's been really encouraging to see, you know, looking back three, 400 years of how the church has been involved and how people, their lives have intersected with the church and with industry and with um, alcohol and what's, what's been going on. Because for you and I kind of being a part of the evangelical church, especially the American led version of that, it's that's how we look at it. And, and the church tends to have a very specific thing that it does. It's not good with the gray. It lives in the black and the white. Um, hmm. I think we could say one of the things about the evangelical church is it's, it's a pared down version of, of the Christian faith. They've kind of focused on a few things or, um, they focus on the, your personal relationship with God. Uh, they focus on uh, you know, sinful depravity of man. In, in, important things yeah. that they have felt like we needed to move to for this so-and-so period. Exactly. Of time. That's... And all those things are, are part of, 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 of everybody. And they, they, they reach the loss. So I'd say you know, personal relationship, sinful depravity, and reaching the loss is kind of the what probably defines a lot of the, the American evangelicalism. Um but they also didn't do a very good job of embracing other aspects that the church was doing, which is meeting the community, reaching out, um, you know, looking for soup kitchens, orphanages, mission societies. Building the kingdom of God, as we can sometimes term it as. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and I think, I don't think that, that my like my parents, you know, in the 60s, 70s and 80s thought that they were we're you know building something really insular and um toxic in some ways but you know in in a lot of ways we we see that's what the end result is is um you know the evangelical worldview has basically turned it insular it's you know, us versus them and um and kind of protectionism and because of that you know it's that echo chamber um and you know they're not, they're not meeting for drinks with, with local people in their in their their neighborhood, and um, they're not you know going down to the pub and and you know living life with with everybody else in in the town. That those little choices and those little culture shifts ended up having some big changes. And I think I know you have issues with kind of how the sacrament has been. Um, portrayed in evangelicalism versus how it, it probably had been done traditionally. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've hinted at that a few times, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's it's become a more introspective, um, personal situation as opposed to a, a communal. Well, like just something we have to do because it's sort of shoved in the Bible. So let's find a way to do it. <laughs> And let's do it with grape juice. Ugh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wonder bread and grape juice, right? Oh, my gosh. Uh... In this whole circle we've promised you, I think it's important that we not be afraid of going back to the some of these roots and thinking about why we do it. Obviously, you don't want to... Uh, we don't drink because we're having issues, because that creates issues. But we not be afraid of drinking because... It has a unique way of bringing us together. Mm-hmm. And in a time, I think that we're really struggling with coming together. This is a natural way. To, uh, and it and it creates an unusual community that I don't think anyone would be able to, com- to create in any other way. And people have been doing it for 10,000 years, probably. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's not something you can just take away in a couple hundred I don't think and I think that's what we've discovered and realized yeah and that's what uh, we think that this story shows I think um, I want to leave you guys with a GK Chesterton quote again like we did last time this one's a bit more poignant Ooh. the dipsomaniac and the abstainer are not only both mistaken they both make the same mistake they both regard wine as a drug and not as a drink so that's it for now we'll talk more when we get our next episode together and learning more about the background to some of these things that we don't often think about within some of the worlds that we live in should we just say some of the things that we don't often step back and think about Ooh, that'd make a good uh, title inside outside inside out hmm Stay tuned for uh, season two, hopefully coming soon.